Good morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Jonathan Haidt is a professor of moral psychology at New York University. In a talk he gave a few years ago, he says that there are two basic forces at work in human society. One of them is what he calls uh, forces of division. These would be things that tear us apart as a community. And the other are what he calls forces of unity. These are things like shared beliefs and values and traditions. These are forces that bind us together as a community. So he gives an example. 1968 was uh, one of the most tumultuous years in the history of this country. Many people call it the year America unraveled. You had things like the assassination of Martin Luther King. A few months later, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And on top of all that, the Vietnam War was tearing this country apart. You had all these forces of division that were really strong in 1968. But, Jonathan Haidt says, because the forces of unity were so much stronger then, the country was able to make it through. Fast forward to today, and Jonathan Haidt says that we have so damaged the forces of unity that the future of this country is really uncertain. That the forces of unity are so weakened and atrophied that they are not strong enough to counter the enlarged hypertrophied uh, hyper forces of division and hatred and hostility and polarization that are tearing our country apart. Do you ever feel that? I think we all do. But what's the solution? As cliche um, and as naive, in fact, it's so cliche and naive, I'm embarrassed to say it, but wouldn't the solution be love? One of the, the greatest needs, in fact, maybe the greatest need in this world has always been and continues to be for more love in the world. But what does that look like? I think that at the very least, it would mean a profound change in the way we treat other people. Now, in our culture, uh, you know that other is an adjective, but it's not just an adjective that means different or distinct. In our culture, other can also be a verb. To other someone means to treat someone else as less than or inferior or sometimes even subhuman. So, for instance, that might be 
that person who cuts you off when you're driving. It might be at the grocery store, that person who's got 25 items in the 10 item or less lane. And those are just the superficial examples. What about people who are really reprehensible? What about the bigots, the misogynists, the abusers, the oppressors? Is it possible to really love those people? Is it even right to love them? We're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. In this letter, Paul is um, talking to a church that is experiencing many of the same kinds of divisions and infighting that plague our society. And last week's passage, we saw that he was calling them to love one another and to hold on to those forces of unity that bind them together. Um, Kiwi preached a great sermon on this last week. But this week, we see that this topic is so important to Paul that it's not enough for him to simply tell them to love one another. He goes on to give them a picture of what this love actually looks like. What is love? What does it actually look like in action? This passage shows us three things. It shows us the mindset of love, the obstacle to love, and the song of love. Okay? The mindset of love, the obstacle to love, and the song of love. Let's take a look at each one of these. First, Paul shows us the mindset of love. Have you ever seen somebody do something really weird or confusing, and you said, hey, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind when you did that? Uh, Paul is kind of getting at the same idea here at the very beginning of this passage. Uh, In the very beginning, he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we look at Jesus, and especially when we look at his death on the cross, the question is, what was he thinking? What was going through his mind? Paul is saying the same thing should be going through your mind on a daily basis. So what was Jesus thinking? In other words, what was his mindset as he lived and died on the cross? Well, Paul shows us. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, a couple of things to understand here. First, this word form is is not a word that only means the outward expression of something, as if to say, oh, well, Jesus only appeared to be God, but he wasn't really God. No, This word form is a word that means to have both the inward identity of something and the outward expression of it. Paul is saying Jesus is God inside and out. And you can see that, by the way, he goes on to say that Jesus had equality with God. But the second thing to understand here is this word grasp. This is a word that means to hold on to something forcibly. Kind of like when we say that somebody's hanging on to something for dear life. Paul is saying Jesus is God inside and out, but he didn't hang on to his status as God. Instead, he goes on to say that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in human likeness. Now, Paul is saying the same thing that the Gospel of John says at the very beginning, that God became flesh, that God became a human being. But that said, people will look at this phrase, it says he emptied himself, and they get confused by this. Many people ask the question, well, what did Jesus empty? Did he empty his glory? Did he empty his divinity? Did he empty his identity as God? And the answer is, 
look at what Paul says. He didn't empty his glory or his divinity. It says he emptied himself. In other words, when Jesus became God, he, he never stopped being God. When Jesus became a human being, that is, he never stopped being God, and yet he poured out his very self. But here's the really mind-bending thing. Um, remember, Paul is saying Jesus is God inside and out. He didn't grasp at his status of, as God. Instead, he emptied himself. And then notice the language Paul uses here, taking the form of a servant. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, that word form is the exact same word we saw just a moment ago when Paul says that Jesus is God. Um, here's what this means. And remember, that word means to have both the inward identity of something and the outward expression of it. Here's why this is so important. Think about this. A, a superficial reading of this passage might sound like, oh, when Jesus, who's God, became a human being, when he became a servant, he was um, giving up his identity of God and taking on a different identity, the identity of a servant. Friends, that is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. When Jesus became a servant, it wasn't God taking a different identity. It was God revealing his true identity, the very identity of God, the very nature of God, the very heartbeat of God is a servant. Think about what this means. You know, it's, um, do we ever think about this? What, what do we mean when we say that God is love? We say this all the time, God is love. People will say things like, I, I could never believe in a God of wrath or judgment. I could only believe in a God of love. Okay, but what do we mean when we say that God is love? Friends, here's the point. What is love? This passage is showing us that real love is giving yourself away. Real love is giving yourself away. That's what God does. That's who God is. And that's what real love is. In other words, there is nothing more life-changing than sacrificial love. All truly life-changing love is sacrificial love. So, for instance, if you're a parent, you know exactly what this means, that in order for your child to flourish, that basically means you're going to flush your own life down the toilet for at least the next 20 years. It means that you give up your time, your well-being, your interests, your agenda, your hopes and dreams. You give up your money. You give up your sleep. You give up everything for the sake of that child. All truly life-changing love is sacrificial love. Or think about what this looks like in terms of historical events. Think about soldiers who gave their lives in war so that their country could be free. Or think about the civil rights movement. You know, African Americans who gave up their lives so that other people could vote. How's that for an exchange? Your life for someone else's right to vote. You know, sign me up. All truly life-changing love is sacrificial love. Or, you know, think about what this looks like at a popular level. All the best movies, all the best stories, they all revolve around this idea of someone who sacrifices something precious for the sake of someone else. And you see this storyline everywhere. Uh, for instance, you see it in Les Mis, which is the story of the convict Jean Valjean. And when he gets out of prison, a kindly bishop takes him and gives him a place to stay. And how does he repay the kindness of the bishop? He steals the guy's silver and sneaks off into the night. 
But then when he gets arrested and brought back, instead of having him thrown in jail, the bishop says, oh, I gave him the silver. In fact, hey, Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. You got to take these too, buddy. The bishop's sacrificial love sets Jean Valjean free, not just physically, but spiritually. It changes him forever. Think about this storyline. We see it everywhere, not just in old books. We see it right today. We see it in um, Harry Potter. We see it in Hunger Games. We see it in Stranger Things. Um, If you've been watching it, the most recent uh, example would be Ted Lasso. No spoilers, but if you get a chance to watch it, you see this storyline everywhere. Friends, why is it that as modern and as enlightened and as progressive as we've become as a society, we can't get away from this storyline. It's because all truly life-changing love is sacrificial love. That's who God is. What do we mean when we say that God is love? This passage is showing us that real love is giving yourself away because God's love is giving himself away. So that when Jesus became a human being, when he became a servant, it wasn't God taking on a different identity. It was God revealing his true identity. That's the mindset of love. And that leads to our second point. We've just looked at the mindset, but secondly, we need to look at the obstacle to love. Because if real love is giving yourself away, then here's the question, why don't we do this? Why don't we live like this? Yeah, of course, we'll do this with some people, right? We'll do this, for instance, with our family. But all you have to do is say that word, and you realize that the places where we're most likely to do this are also the places most often in our life where we have the most conflict. If real love is giving yourself away, why don't we actually live like this? Well, in last week's passage, Paul mentions several things that prevent us from living like this. And one of the biggest is in verse 3. Last week, we saw that Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You see that word conceit? Uh, the Greek word is literally kinodoxis. It, that's a combination of two words, kinos, which means empty, and doxis, which means glory. You put them both together, and it literally means empty of glory. I can't think of a much better way of describing the way so many of us feel so much of the time, empty of glory. Even though at our core, we all want to know that our lives matter, don't we? At the very core of our existence, we want to know, in fact, we need to know that we are both seen and loved. We need to know that we are seen and loved. The tragedy is that um, instead of at the center of our heart, where there should be this deep assurance that we're seen and loved, so much of the time there's a a deep question mark. There's an uncertainty that that we're really seen and loved. We need this as human beings. For instance, uh, Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist and writer who also specializes in neurobiology. in In his latest book, he says this, Every baby comes into the world looking for someone who is looking for him or her. Isn't that true? It's it's beautiful also, isn't it? Every single one of us comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for you. We all need to be seen and loved, but the tragedy is in this world, we have all 
experienced loss. We've all experienced hurts. We've all received wounds in this world. Every single one of us. And as a result, there's this deep uncertainty in our lives that we really are seen and loved. And that uncertainty eats away at us. What do we do with that uncertainty? Listen, it's really important to say that on the one hand, every single one of us, you are not responsible for the things that have been done to you. You are not responsible for the things that have happened to you. However, we are responsible, eternally responsible, for how we respond to the things that have happened to us. When we experience that feeling of empty glory, how do we respond? Well, remember what Paul said about Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus is God, which means Jesus has all the glory, and yet Jesus did not grasp at the glory. We're empty of glory, but what do we do? We do grasp for the glory, and not just any glory, we grasp for the glory of God. On top of that, we actually live in a culture that actively encourages us to do this. There's a great example of this in a brand new book by Tara Isabella Burton. She talks about Equinox. Have you ever heard of Equinox? Maybe not, because uh, it's a super high-end luxury fitness center, but we don't actually have them here in St. Louis. We're not hoity-toity enough for Equinox. In order to find an Equinox gym, you've got to go to like New York or L.A. or Miami or someplace really she-she. But Equinox had a series of ads a few years ago that said, make yourself a gift to the world. And the ads featured a, a series of pictures of really beautiful, fit young people in various states of godlikeness. So here's one of, the, one of the pictures of the ad. This was actually the, the only picture of the four that I found that I felt was actually suitable for showing in church. The other ones had way too much skin. But here's a picture of a beautiful young man in a funeral beer, and he's being worshipped by the people around him. And it says, make yourself a gift to the world. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The ad company that designed this ad campaign has their own website, and this is what they say about these ads. On their website, they say, these pictures feature divine characters. They're talking about human beings as godlike gifts to the world in moments and situations that reflect their self-worship as serving a larger purpose in humanity. They specifically designed these ads to explicitly tell us that self-worship and self-obsession are not just good for you, it's good for the whole world. Friends, we live in a culture that actively encourages us to grasp at glory. But here's the thing, when we grasp at glory, it's a manufactured glory. Go to the gym and sculpt your body. Uh, create a platform and market yourself. Build a brand and promote yourself. We manufacture glory, but friends, manufactured glory is always artificial glory. And artificial glory can never satisfy us Artificial glory can never fill that emptiness inside of us. It can never give us what we're really looking for. And yet, we're constantly grasping hold of that glory. We're grasping for likes and shares on social media. We grasp for status and recognition. We grasp for possessions and pleasures. We grasp for different ways of distinguishing ourselves in the world so that people will respect us and admire us. 
We're always grasping. The tragedy is that the more we grasp for this glory, the emptier we feel and the more enslaved and addicted we become to our grasping for glory. I once heard a great story about how animal trappers go about catching monkeys. Maybe some of you have seen these kinds of traps. What they'll do is the trappers will put shiny beads inside of a jar with a really narrow mouth, and then they'll fasten the jar to the ground or a tree. So when the monkeys come along, they see the shiny beads, and they stick their hand inside and grab hold of the beads. But now, because they've closed their fist... The only way the monkey could get their hand out of the jar would be to let go of the beads, and they will not do it. They're stuck. And so now all the animal trapper has to do is come along, pick up the monkey, and put him in a cage. And not only that, but the only way the trappers can get the monkey's hands out of the jar is to break the jar because the monkeys will not let go of the beads. Friends, that is exactly what we do with our manufactured glory. We're we're always grasping for glory, but the more we grasp, the emptier we feel, the more enslaved we become. Friends, here's why this is so important for us. Remember, real love is giving yourself away. Why don't we do it? The answer is because you can only give yourself away if you have a self to give. You can only give yourself away if you have a self a real self, to give away. One of the biggest obstacles to love is that so much of the time we are so busy trying to protect and defend an artificial self based on an artificial glory that we don't actually have a real self to give away. The more we grasp at glory, the emptier we become, the less real we become. This is the obstacle to love. What would the solution be? Because you know what this does to us? This ends up making all of our relationships and interactions with people getting more and more distorted into kind of like a zero-sum cage match in which we're always fighting and protecting our own interests and becoming less and less able to actually give ourselves away for the sake of others. Is there any hope for us? (laughs) Is there any hope for the world? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the mindset of love. Real love is giving yourself away. We've seen the obstacle to love. You can only give yourself away if you have a real self to give. But that leads, lastly, to the song of love. Because here's the question. If you can only give yourself away if you have a real self to give, then the big question is, how do we get a real self? Paul is showing us in this passage. In fact, he's giving us a song here. Many scholars have pointed out that this passage in Philippians is actually a hymn or a song. They're not sure if Paul learned it from other Christians or if he maybe wrote it himself, but we don't know exactly who wrote this hymn. What we do know is that the hymn is about Jesus, and here are the lyrics. Remember, every single one of us experiences this feeling of being empty of glory. We want to be seen and loved in this world. The tragedy is that we're deeply unsure that we're seen and loved. And so the way we respond to that is is that we're always grasping at an artificial glory. In fact, we're always grasping at God's glory, which is another way of talking about sin because sin means trying to usurp the glory of God. It's trying to get something we don't have by stealing it from someone else, stealing it from God. But Jesus 
never had to grasp at anything because Jesus is God, and he always, always, always had all of the glory. But, Paul says, when Jesus became a human being, he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, that word humbled um, is a word that means to take the lowest place. Do you hear the lyrics of the song here? Jesus had the highest place, but he took the lowest place because there is no place lower. There is no greater service. There is no greater sacrifice than giving your life for the sake of someone else. But the song continues and doesn't just say that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. It adds a little phrase that says, even death on a cross. Now, that may not be all that significant to us because, you know, we've been kind of anesthetized uh, by 2,000 years of Christianity. So to us, the cross is a cool symbol that we may wear around our neck or, you know, maybe we'll get it tattooed on our body. But in the ancient world, the crucifixion was so horrifying, so degrading, so shameful that it was highly offensive even just to mention it in polite conversation. You just didn't do that. It was so horrifying, degrading, and shameful. That's what crucifixion meant in the ancient world. Now, today, you know, we'll try and get a little taste of that, and we'll sometimes compare crucifixion to the electric chair, which is fine because they're both both forms of execution. A much closer uh, modern example, however, would be lynching. That at least is starting to get a little bit closer to, um, to the horror, degradation, and shame of what uh, crucifixion really meant in the ancient world. And to portray, openly portray, that level uh, of horror is shocking to the world. It's shocking. So, for instance, when Mamie Till, she was the mother of Emmett Till, when she had an open casket funeral for her son Emmett, they had pictures of his mutilated body that were published in like Jet Magazine and other publications. It was so horrifying that it shocked the world. Friends, that is just the merest echo of how horrifying, degrading, and shameful crucifixion was in the ancient world. Friends, here's the question. When we grasp at artificial glory, do you realize what we're doing for ourselves? The more we try to exalt ourselves to the highest place, the more we pull ourselves down to the horror, degradation, and shame of the lowest place. But on the cross, Jesus Christ didn't grasp to his glory as God. Instead, he grasped our horror, degradation, and shame. Jesus grasped the wood of the cross. He grasped the nails in his hands so that he could grasp you, so that he could lay hold of you. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate place where the God of the universe sings and says, I see you. I love you. I give myself for you, for you are my song. There's the real self we're desperate to become. There's the real song we're so uh, always listening for. There's the, um, the love we came into the world looking for. And there's the glory that we're so empty for. Jesus gives all of it to us on the cross. He gives us a real self. And so the more that song gets into your bones, the more we begin to dance to that music in the rest of our lives. 
In fact, I want to leave you with just one hopefully very practical way of dancing to this music in your own lives every day. There's a theologian and writer named Andrew Root, and along with several other theologians, um, they've noticed and pointed out how in this song there's actually a pattern of living. Um, I want to call it the gospel three-step. And yes, I do recognize exactly how cheesy and hokey that is, which is hopefully one reason that you're not going to forget it. But what is the gospel three-step? We see it in verses 6 through 7. Paul says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So for Jesus, the gospel three-step says, though he was God, he did not grasp at equality with God. He didn't grasp at what was his by rights, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Though, not, but. Friends, the gospel three-step has three steps. <laughs> though, not, but. Do you hear the rhythm? Though, not, but. Though, not, but. Though, not, but. The gospel, now, this is endless variations possible for us in our daily lives. Let me give you just a couple of examples so that maybe we can get a picture of this. For instance, imagine you're, you're back at the grocery store now, and you're heading to the checkout line, and somebody else is headed for the same line. And you're eyeballing them, who's going to get there first? The gospel three-step says, though you have every right to pick up your pace and, and get in front of that line, you do not cut in front of that other person, but instead you stop, you extend and open your arm, and you say, please, after you. Now, that's kind of a silly, even superficial example. Let me give you one that's just slightly harder than that. Imagine that you have a, a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, somebody who's been a real jerk to you. The gospel three-step says, though you have every right to cut that hater out of your life, you do not ignore them when you see them obviously struggling with something, but instead you go out of your way to do what you can for them. Do you see the pattern here? Though, not, but. Though we have every right to protect our rights, we do not do what's best for ourselves, but we serve our others. We become a servant of others. That is the gospel three-step. That's, that's everything Jesus did for us, and that's what we would be doing, should be doing for others, so that when you do something, and by the way, we always need to say this, when we talk about something like this, it's really important to mention that this does not mean, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule, okay? In other words, this does not mean becoming a codependent doorstep, uh, doormat for other people. This does not mean um, staying in abusive situations. This does not mean that we um, fail to hold evil and injustice accountable in this world. There are always exceptions to the rule, but even the exceptions always prove the rule. Because even in situations like that and many others, what would it look like to actually take the gospel three-step and apply it to that situation in a way that's not unhealthy or dysfunctional? It would be crazy. So that you would end up doing things that look really weird or confusing to the world, but then they might ask you, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind when you did that? Friends, the only way we can give ourselves away is if we have a real self to give. The cross of Jesus Christ gives you a real self that can never be taken away, so that now sets you free to give yourself away. Have you received this real self? 
Do you hear this song? And will you dance to the music, this music that the world so desperately needs to hear? If you're willing, I invite you to pray with me. Abba, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we came into this world as your creatures, as your creation, looking for someone, looking for us. Lord, the tragedy of life in this fallen world is that we have all experienced hurt and loss and wounds in this world. And yet, foolishly and sinfully, Lord, instead of turning back to you um, for the love that we need, we seek to grasp an artificial glory of our own making. Father, forgive us, we pray, and we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus, our Savior on the cross, who grasped us by grasping the horror, shame, and degradation of the cross so that he could lay hold of us, give us a self, and set us free to live lives of sacrificial service in the world around us, that others may come to see and know and receive the real self, the real love that is only available on the cross of Jesus. Father, help us to embrace this love and this self and to be vessels of this love to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.